Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast from BBC Studios, the commercial subsidiary of the BBC. You're listening to Season 3 of the TalentWorks Podcast, an interview series with digital talent brought to you by Helen O'Donnell and me, Brona Monaghan. Each week, Helen and I speak to the best in the business when it comes to digital talent. Here at BBC Studios, it's our job to discover and nurture the next generation of talent who've built their audiences online and are evolving and innovating the media landscape as we know it. Gina Martin is an activist, writer and law changer. After a horrific experience at a music festival, where a man took photos up her skirt with his phone in broad daylight without legal consequence, instead of brushing it off, Gina made the decision to act. With the help and support of her lawyer, Ryan Whelan, Gina campaigned tirelessly for 18 months to have the law passed to make upskirting illegal. Gina doesn't fit into the typical conservative expectations of a lawmaker. She hasn't worked in politics or as a legal practitioner, but through education and steely perseverance, she achieved what is made to seem impossible. Her first book, Be the Change, a toolkit for the activist in you, was published in June 2019. She was recently announced as a UN campaign advocate and she is one of Time magazine's most influential people of 2019. This is our interview with Gina. This recording contains some strong language. We're so excited to have uh, Gina here with us. Hey. Hey. So Gina, you're a political activist, writer and law changer. But how does it feel to have law changer as part of your bio? Weird. Because I think when I grew up, people who did those kinds of things in those kind of institutions and like law and politics were like remarkable people who are nothing like me. So I find it very strange that I was able to achieve that. I mean, I did a lot of work and we did it very well and it was a great campaign. But yeah, strange. It doesn't feel like it applies to me. But then it's comforting because having been able to do it, it's like, oh, yeah, no, you don't have to be an academic or politician to make change happen. That's nice. Mm. So how did it, how was the process? Horrific. Yeah, truly horrific. <laughs> Tell us about how you remained <laughs> strong throughout that journey. Um, it was, the process was obviously 18 months and it was social media campaign and a traditional media campaign and strategy, which I ran. And then it was a political strategy and legal strategy, which Ryan Whelan, my lawyer, ran, who partnered with me pro bono and became my great friend. Um, it was just the two of us. So we were a very flexible team because there's only two of us and we could change and uh, zigzag and, and, you know, replan all the time if we needed to. But... Uh, on, on a personal level, I think it was very difficult because um, Parliament is not set up for young women who, you know, dress like kids' TV show hosts. Uh, and it's not really set up for, like, working-class Northern people to go in there and, and change things. And it's made to intimidate you. And I was very intimidated for a very, very long time. And I started to try and be like what politicians are, which is kind of the opposite of what I'm like. Um, and that kind of intimidation in terms of being in Parliament and also because they kind of... If they, if they don't intimidate you, then anyone could go in there and change anything. So they, they do, sort of on purpose. And so that, coupled with probably the reaction to my social media campaign, which I was running every single day for 18 months, and they kind of 
social media backlash, mostly from guys, sadly. Like, I wish it wasn't, but it was. And, and also some older women about the fact that what I was trying to do, which was making it upscaling illegal, making it a sexual offence, was kind of trivial. Uh, at best, that's what people would say. And then at worst, I had rape threats for a year and a half. And they went on all the time. And, and, and they're so insidious because they're in your pocket all the time. And I'd o- open my phone to talk to my dad and they'd be there. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard to deal with. So I think personally, I don't know really fully if I've processed how hard that was like I've gone into therapy because of it um and I'm not sure I've fully processed that but because you don't you just have to get through it and do it but the way that I got through that I think was people around me like we have this now I mean I'm fairly confident as a person so I'm lucky that I have that kind of disposition but I think we have a bit of a narrative that now especially because we're trying to empower women and marginalized genders really really like in every conversation so we have this thing where we're like you know yeah, go for it, just like kill it and like slay it and blah. And I, just, I never woke up and was like, yeah, I'll just slay it. I was crying in the bath all the time. Mm, like, I never yeah. felt like that once. And it was down to me like being very intentional about creating kind of a support system around me in life. I sort of, I guess, demoted certain friends who, you know, made me feel sort of shit or, you know, never were there when I wanted to, you know, offload or wanted to chat. And I built like a very strong support system around myself during that period of time and online in different communities. And I think that's kind of what got me through it because when you're doing something far bigger than yourself, you need people who are just gonna fight your corner and pick you back up. And and with Ryan, between my lawyer Ryan and my partner Geordie and my friends and the online communities I was in, that was what made me sort of get up and put my foot in front of the other when it was getting really hard. So I think your your support stru- uh, structure around you is like the most important thing. It's never It never came from me being like, I'm just gonna kill it, because that's not actually how we live. <laughs> but on social media, you were really the face of it, weren't you? That's yeah. what's sort of tricky because it was your personal story. You then became the face. Exactly. So you also knew about social media before the campaign, didn't you? Yes. So how did you sort of know I can utilise online to make a difference? Yeah. I don't know if I ever even articulated it to myself, really. Like, oh, I should do the same thing I do in advertising. Because I'd worked in digital marketing for like five years. So I'd been, I'd just, you know, creative strategy for brands and social campaigns, back end and front end of campaigns in different agencies. So I knew how to use social media. It's a science and maths. And I knew how to get um, messages to people and mobilize people and make them do things and see how they react and then reappropriate, re- readjust. Um, but it was like, it, I was just so used to doing that that it's almost like I just naturally did that with the campaign because I'd spent five years selling things I didn't need to sell. And now it was like, oh, I really need to get people on board something, a cause that's important. So I just sort of applied all that thinking while well, I've been sort of knowing to this. And <clears throat> I think it was only halfway through that I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing, a, I'm doing an ad campaign, but for a cause. Like I'm, I'm putting Facebook ads out to get people to sign petitions. And so yeah, I was basically just doing that. So that was really interesting and it really helped because I honestly don't, there is no way I could have got that much information to that many people that quickly and motivated people that fast on that unprecedented level. Like it was millions of people, like millions and millions. The BBC piece was millions of people and that was one piece. I think I've done like 200 pieces of, 250 pieces of media for the campaign. So the level of awareness, I d- and now I go up and down the country like just to my, you know, my grandma's friends or like the hairdressers or whatever. And literally everyone I talk to, they go, what are you doing? I go, oh, this. And they go, oh, so what have you worked on? And I say it and everyone knows it. So the level of reach, that could have never happened traditionally. I could have never done that by handing out flyers or doing talks. Like it was such a game changer. And is that something you want to go on to educate people on? Yes, yeah. because there's, you know, if it's used intelligently, I think Patty Smith said, if you use social media intelligently and cleverly, it can be used for great or good. And 
she's totally right. There's so much we could do with it. And we just, it's just kind of a microcosm of society. So we just kind of use it how we live. But if you get really clever with it, God, the things that people have done using it as a tool are just unprecedented. So I really want to show people how to use it for good more, I guess. You also use it really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's, you, know, <laughs> you, you are an artist as well. Uh, you do your ink work um, that you sell online. Mm. At what point did you realize that you had a creative talent? I've studied, I studied art for 12 years before I, did, I went into advertising and it's why I went into advertising because I come from a freelance creative family. Like my mom was an architect and she was a, an artist and my dad, um, uh, well, she was interior architect, interior designer. And my dad was, is a drummer and my sister's in comedy and like we're just a very creative family. So I grew up just loving drawing and painting and I studied fine art all the way through school and college. And then when I went to uni, I guess in my head, my little socialized brain, I was like, oh, I need to make money from it. I can't just be an artist. And it's weird because if I'd communicated that to my parents, they would have gone, yeah, you can go and do it. But I didn't. So I was like, I guess I'll be an art director because I was always interested in ads and like, I guess more the psychology behind Mm -hmm. why people do things and what marketing is. So I was like, well, I'll be an art director because then I make money and I'll sort of be like being an artist. It wasn't at all. I didn't draw for like five years. and so I always knew I was creative and I guess because of the, that's always been my solace. Like I'm a drummer and I paint. And those two things, when I'm sad, my boyfriend like, oh, I'm stressed. My boyfriend just goes over and gets paints and like sets me up without saying a word, like just so I can paint because it makes me, yeah, I don't think about anything and, I, and it's fun and it, I'm good at it and it's joyful to do it. So the Ink Girls thing was kind of like, when, you know, years ago, before I started the campaign, I sort of created these, like, really simple line Matisse-based kind of ink girl things, pictures, portraits. And I tried to sell a couple of them because I wanted to put sort of 10% or 20% of the money to um, charities and, like, startups and stuff for, uh, against sexual violence. And this was kind of before the campaign, so sort of always been that kind of person, I guess. And then when the campaign kicked off, I was like, oh, I could sell way more of these and make way more money for for charities and stuff. So I started doing that. And it's just great because it just gives me like a little bit of solace. It's like me when I was 12. And my life has changed so dramatically over the past few years. It's like this thing I've never lost and I love it so much, yeah. And I imagine that's where a big part of your frustration came from because politics is is really a world of black and white. Yes. And there is no nuance and colour. Exactly. And so it's it's not a space that kind of caters for artistic or creative people. Not at all. I went. I think I. I think you're. You've hit the nail on the head. I went the opposite way. So for a, the first six months in Parliament, I was wearing black, and I was actually accidentally one day realised I was fully dressed dressed as a suffragette, like accidentally. <laughs> and there's a photo on Instagram, and I'm wearing like knee high boots and like the long coat and the dress, and I was like in the in the in the house, like arguing and having meetings with people dressed as a suffragette and I was like why am I I don't even I never wear all black like what am I doing but I started to like replicate the archetype power that I was seeing in there so they would take me seriously and it took me a while to go you don't need to do that because you have like a six foot four like male lawyer in a suit behind (laughs) you that you got together with specifically because a he's brilliant but also because they would respond to him because they wouldn't respond to you as much um that was you know really helpful to have him there and so I don't need to be the lawyer I have the lawyer, just be the campaigner that's really passionate and this has happened to and blah, blah, blah. So I went the opposite way and I went way more colourful. And actually during the campaign, I that's where my mad colour came from because I was so annoyed at this like dry... Rigid. Yeah, so I went like really colourful and blah, blah, blah. And I used to wear red suits to Parliament and they'd be like, oh, I can't wear that hair. And I was like, is there a dress code or what? So a lot of my artistic stuff came back, I think, in that period of time because I felt stifled in other ways, probably. So you wrote your first book last year, Be The Change. Tell us about the book. How did that come about? 
That's quite a funny uh, story. I think it came about because, so when I wanted to change the law, I, ne I mean, when I got upskirted, I didn't go, I'm going to change the law. How dare you? Like, it was like, I was like well upset for ages. And then I was like, I should try and do something about this and talk about it. And the first thing I did was go online and put a picture of the guys. There was a selfie of me and my sister had taken and the guys were behind us and I found out my phone and was like, oh my God, they're in this picture. I have a photo of them. When does that ever happen? So I put it on Facebook and I was like, the law can't help me, the police couldn't help me, but let's just share these, this photo around because I just want this guy to feel something. I was just being petty. Um, and everyone shared it and then Facebook got in contact with me and said, oh, you have to take the picture down because it's harassment like to the guy of the guys because I was alleging they'd done something but then taking photos of my vagina. It's literally fine. So I got super angry and that's when I was like, Oh, I need to look into the law, I need to change the law. So I, what I did is I looked into the law and I found out there was a grey area with the help of law students because I couldn't read most of the text because it was too academic and I'm not, you know, it wasn't accessible. And so I used some, a, a friend called Tasha who was a, a law student at the time and she helped me and I was like, okay, so I need to change the law. And I literally sat on my laptop. You know, something's so overwhelming, like where do you even start with it? Like there's just no starting point for this. There's no uh, guide or manual. Step one. Yeah, like you do this, <laughs> what? So I just sat in front of my laptop and I Googled, like, how do you change the law? And, like, nothing came off, obviously. And I was like, sick. Okay, cool. <laughs> I just sat there and Googled stuff. And so when the end of the campaign came, when I found out we had changed the law, which was all we were going to, which was probably... I sort of knew we were going to in, like, November, December 2018. And I found out that it was... It had gone to royal assent. The Queen was going to sign it off. And that was going to happen in J January. And it officially changed in April. So February and April, I was like... I need to write something that's like really accessible because when I was looking for stuff to teach me how to go into these spaces as someone who is not from those spaces, everything was so academic. Nothing was accessible. It was written by brilliant, bright minds who have been in there for ages who aren't me. And I was like, imagine if someone just went, here's what all of social platforms are best used for. Here's some basic social strategy. Here's how to like write a press release. Here's how to um, get in touch with local media and get some first media. Here's how to go into high pressure situations. Here's how to public speak. I would find it's even stupid stuff like here's how to do TV interviews like mm -hmm. don't wear don't do what I did and wear like tights and like a silk skirt because you have nowhere to put your mic pack like don't wear a tight dress because you have to lift your dress up and wear to the producer and then he'll be like what are you on for and I'll be like upskirting ironically um, <laughs> it is my bum yeah literally I was in the green room this morning with my ass out like upskirting um, <laughs> but just all stupid things that we just don't know because you no. only learn that stuff when you're in the industries so I just put it all together in a really accessible package and it's basically like 101 of campaigning why activism is so important now why campaigning is so important now what the opportunities are with the internet what, how, you know, how excited and engaged young people are about politics and why that sort of happened, what the main issues are. And it's just sort of a kick up the arse to get you going and it's a really supportive place to start and you can dip in and out of it and it's fairly interactive in terms of like there's plans and mind maps and stuff. Um, you know, and anyone who is, is a seasoned campaigner like me now, two years in, three years in, I would probably use it, I'd dip in and out to use it, but I'd probably, when I finished writing it, I was like, oh, I feel like this is too simple because blah, blah, blah. But it's like, if I'd had that at the beginning, it would have changed everything for me. So I just wrote the book I needed, I think, the first couple of weeks I started the campaign. So who's the ideal reader? The ideal reader is someone who cares about things and doesn't, know, or wants to do something but has like no concept of where to start. So it could be, there's been people like, young people who uh, have use the book as a structure to try and help change law in other countries. So after the Voyeurism Act came into um, fruition in England and Wales, which I did, it was then taken to Gibraltar, France and Germany, and we've changed law in three other countries as well. And in Germany, the young women who started that campaign, uh, based on my campaign and based on changing the law, the law change here, they used the book. 
as as a helpful place to start. So that's ideal. Yeah. I mean, that's changing the law, but also like my sister, like she she is nowhere near the kind of industry that I'm in. She's in comedy and she used it because she was like, there's a section about like refitting your house with all the essentials that do better. So like, mm-hmm. you know, toilet paper that is like 100% recycled and helps build toilets across the world or like swap this out for this because it's way better and you get, you're using that stuff all day. Simple like life changes that are small activism things. And Stevie has used it for that. So it can really be just anyone who feels like paralyzed about how much there is to change and wants to take some kind of action to kind of ease that paralysis. And that's what the idea of it. But then equally, um, there's been people at the top of the House of Lords who are 70 years old who have come to me and said, oh, it's really helpful because I don't know how to use social media. And it showed me how to use social media. It's sort of for all types of people, really. I was going to say, because obviously changing the law, that's such a, for, for a lot of people, that is such a, a big, a massive, you know, yeah. a big thing, big history changing thing. And actually it's, you know, for the everyday person, it's just those small little 100%. kind of empowering moments that you can have and being a change maker, I guess, in a sort in, in your own community or yeah, in your own environment. That's been the most amazing thing from doing this is, the amount of people I've met who are making so much, you know, massive change, but also people who are making small changes. And it's just equally as inspiring. Like, I know these guys from Liverpool who, two older guys, one's an Everton fan, one's a Liverpool fan, and they were going to the matches. And obviously, these are multi-million pound companies, Anfield and Everton. Is it, what's it called? Everton's ground? I don't know. But everyone who lives around it is like under below the poverty line. And they started this thing where they just got everyone they know to take, when they go to the match, to take um, a ticket, a scarf and a can of food. And it's just accidentally grown into this thing where they're feeding all of Liverpool every game. Like that started from them just going, oh, what can we do? Okay, we'll tell everyone to bring a can of food and we'll donate it to a food bank. There's people who, you know, I know who put their houses on green energy and they're just trying to make their houses easier. And it just, it elevates, sorry, it, it um, doesn't elevate, it uh alleviates that kind of sense of helplessness you have. And if we were all doing small things, we'd be all putting a puzzle piece down, you know, but we just don't really know where to start or what we can do. So that's what the book's about. And that's what all activism is about. It's not about changing law. It's just about pushing for progress where you can with whatever skills you have. That's all it's about. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. But we're very grateful that you did change the law. Oh, of course. Anytime. <laughs> and how did you find actually writing a book for the first time? Really hard. Like the process of it. Talk us through how did you do that as a creative mind? That was really hard. I did that at the end of the law change. So the law change was going to be announced and I did it. I wrote it in two months. Oh, wow. Which is bonk. From like selling the idea to like publishing it, which is probably the fastest deadline anyone's ever had for a book. Um, it's 60,000 words. So yeah, that's mad. So I left my job and I sat in the house for 
nine, ten hours a day and just wrote it. Um, didn't really do anything else. Didn't leave the house at one point for three days and I went to the shop and I didn't know how to speak to the guy. <laughs> like I was in my pajamas and I went to like the news agents and he's this lovely guy I see every day. And I went and he was like, oh, hi. And I was like, oh, hi. Um, can I have some food, please? And he was like, just go and pick what you want. It's like, oh, yeah, sorry. Like, I totally lost my ability to inter interact with the world. Um, but it was really stressful. And it was, I mean, I was really lucky because I had Abigail Bergstrom, who's a... Um, uh, Gleam titles and she's just brilliant and she was really helpful at like guiding me through it because she knew what I was going through I was leaving my full-time job I was finishing changing the law I was doing all the press around a law change and I was writing a book and no none of those things are something I've ever done before so I was struggling a lot and she was really helpful um, but I was lucky because I was just putting into this you know format everything I'd learned over two years so I wasn't sitting there and trying to come up with complex com you know concepts that I'd never explored before I was just going okay, what did I do? It was just unpicking what I did and then kind of writing it down in a way that other people could understand. So it was a, a kind of cathartic process actually as well because my life had just been a tumble dryer for two years. So it was kind of nice to be able to do that. Great. You also write for publications like Grazia, Telegraph, Refinery29. Does traditional media still play a big part in your career? Yes, definitely does. I think it's really uh, short-sighted to see social media and be like oh that's a new way to do things it's just not you have to build bridges between different people and different ages and that's why I'm lucky to be able to do working in traditional structures with people from certain backgrounds of certain ages and then also inspiring young people I get to build a bridge between the two and make things more accessible for them so <clears throat> traditional media will always be a part of what I do I'll always write um, in print if I can and if it's still going in 10 years and <laughs> online um, and I'll do social media because I think you have to transcend all different formats if you want to reach all different people Great. So we met on the BBC Studios Talentworks yes. Writers Retreat that was the best done, of my life. Uh, <laughs> that was done with um, the BBC Writers Room. So it was for unscripted talent. We spoke about docs, fact ten, entertainment, mm. audio over the week. What were your expectations? I thought that I'd go in and it it would be a lot of pressure, and that uh, there would be a lot expected of me. And I think that's because that's been my reality for the past two years with what I've been doing. And I thought that it would be really complex and I'd be in a room with people who basically were like, oh yeah, no, I just do this shit all the time and I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'd be like, I have had a really hard year. What about you guys? I don't think anyone would be on my level. I thought I'd be, I was scared that I'd be like the underdog in there. Um, and I also thought it would be very, very complex and a lot of information to take in. And what ended up happening is kind of the opposite, which was it was just a group of people that fully got what I do and how hard it is for the first as the first time I've kind of met a group of people that understood what I do I've been trying to explain to people what I do for two years and no one gets it and I don't really have anyone to talk to because it's a weird job um so it was really like just joy and transformative for me to be there for that week and to be away from London and to be in a kind of safe space I guess creatively and like personally and also it was really like demystified what the industry does for me and I that's I talk all the time about making things more accessible for people, but that isn't really done for me for the things I want to do. And it was like fully what I would have needed if I wanted to go into doing that kind of content. And like, I've, by the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, it's not actually that scary. And, and you have to remove those barriers because like someone might have the talent and the confidence in other ways, but if they think, oh, that's so huge, I probably will never be able to get into it or get there, they'll never try. And it really like removed a couple of those barriers for me. And was there anything that stood out particularly? Yeah, I really want to do docs. I really mm. want to do documentaries and I really want to do fact-based stuff. And it also made me <clears throat> realise that like, I think often with creative endeavours you can sort of feel dispensable. And with this, there was that kind of running theme through everything, which was you have to create ideas that you're the centre of, that like they can't make without you. 
<clears throat> and I remember being like, oh, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's true. But I guess if I, I thought if I'd done that, it would have been seen as sort of like egoish. Do you know mm. what I mean? To put yourself at the center of an idea, I thought would have been kind of, that's probably a very British thing to say, but would have been like, well, no, I can't have a self center. I'm just here. I don't know how I got here. I mean, thank you so much. Just let someone else do it. Yeah, just, I'll just <laughs> do a bit of it and then I'll leave. Um, so the idea of like make, of course, that makes perfect sense because I always say like, the, you know, in activism and campaigning, we need a diverse set of people and the best placed people to take on the issues are the people who've been through it and the people who are the, you know, heartbeat of what the conversation is. So it makes sense to do the same with creative work, but I just hadn't really considered that. So it really, I guess, solidified how I can come up with ideas and how they can be something people haven't done before and something that's like fully true to me as a person, not just doing it because it's an opportunity, but because I should be doing it, which yeah. is great. It's like there's nobody else that could tell this lived experience. Yeah, so exactly. absolutely, it should be you at the centre of it. So you also, you've got a show now with Five Live. Yes. Congrats. Thanks. Tell us a bit about it. <laughs> Uh, so it's called Gina's Game Changers and it's with Nihal Alphanaika and he's on BBC Radio 5 Live and I have an hour slot each month where basically I like I, I send out in the weeks previous I kind of send out a little net and I look at the people that I know my kind of community and my network who are doing amazing things that can be anything from uh, these guys these guys from the fall where we had them on uh, fans for food banks and it can be someone talking about, we had Jamie Margolin, who's a climate activist, who's kind of like, you know, the she's often called the American Greta Thunberg. She took Congress to court. She's at school, still studying. Um, and then also we have people on who are regular people who are like Rachel Williams last week, who was fighting um, against, uh, well, hoping for throttling to be added to the domestic abuse uh, bill because she had dealt with domestic abuse. She was shot by her husband and that she found out that women who are throttled are seven times more likely to die and, and it's not in, really included in law and all this kind of stuff. So she's a regular person who's had an experience who was fighting the law like I was too. So we have people from all kind of different backgrounds and different experiences. And I, I just literally sit there and talk to them and work out how they uh, started it and why they started it because we don't really hear about these people who are going around every day trying to force change and are doing it quietly. Because good, I always say that like good people are very quiet. Like hate and intolerance is very loud. But good people are not. People who are forcing change are not going like, look how good I'm doing this thing. I'm doing a really good thing over here. Like they don't want, really want to talk about. It. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. So I'm trying to platform those people more and help people see them because I think when you see someone, a regular person doing something, you know, brilliant or or um, just passionate about something or trying to make the world a better place in a small way. Makes you feel like you can do it as well. So it's just about platforming those people, really, and talking to them. And it's just really inspiring. It's a really... I said to Nihal, it's like the hour where I, of radio where we feel better about the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and are you enjoying the role of being a broadcaster? Yeah, it's really hard. I, you know, you get thrown in the deep end of all these kind of things. So you popped in a studio with headphones on and there's a producer talking in your ear and you're trying to interview and listen and it's live. Um, what would you say are the key skills? <clears throat> being able to read people, probably, because I... You know, I'm working with Nihal and like, I never like have worked with someone like that and been back and forth and ping-ponging and interviewing and being really aware of working with him when he needs to be speaking, when it's to my turn to ask a question, etc. So reading people. Um, I think being really honest, I thought at first I was really worried because it's the BBC and I didn't want to, I'm very opinionated, that's why I do my work I do and I didn't want to get them into any hot water so I was kind of a bit stilted but I think to a, a too much of a degree at the very beginning and now I've kind of relaxed and I'm quite honest without pushing people to think certain things I can be quite honest about um passionate about things instead of opinionated which is quite a big um thing to have I guess when you're doing impartial broadcasting and also I think just 
I think just enjoying it and just being myself. Like I could have gone in there and tried to be a broadcaster and I would have failed miserably. Like I just had to go in there and be the person I am and try my best and, and that's all I can really do. It's not all any of us can do in any job. So I'm sort of enjoying it way more now because I'm doing that, which is great. Great. So we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, is there a piece of work or a talent that's inspiring you at the moment? Uh, I'm like mad inspired by Stormzy and Akala. Mm-hmm. Like I love Stormzy so much. I think... I'm, I will ha- I'm not going to say I think his personal brand or his strategy is working. I think that's why it is working, because it's just Stormzy talking about the stuff he cares about. It's not Stormzy and then what's his brand like. And I'm really enjoying seeing people step away from the idea that they have to have them personally and then them as a brand. Um, yeah, I think he's amazing, everything he's doing. And also, mm, Knock Down the House, the Netflix documentary, sort of changed my life, probably because I watched it and cried the whole time because it was so similar to what I was trying to do. My mom cleaned houses growing up. I never really saw myself going into politics. Americans aren't asking for a lot. They're just asking for politicians to help them get by. I can do this. I know you can. It was a very different project, but the personal reality of that was very similar to what I was trying to do. And I would love to see more uh, risks taken in terms of content that doesn't need to be sensationalised or like, well, she's trying to do this, but what about these people trying to do this? Like, I would love to see content made that platforms people just trying to do something good for whatever reason without needing to balance it with other things that are maybe slightly more controversial I'm re- I think we're, people are wanting more of that now and we're going towards a space where we want to hear good stories so I, that documentary is amazing love it well Gina that's all we've got time for today but yeah. I mean I could talk to you for hours and hours um, but thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me thanks Gina thank you for listening to this week's episode of the TalentWorks podcast For more interviews like these, click the subscribe button and you'll be notified when our next conversation goes live. Or you can follow us on Instagram at BBC Studios TalentWorks. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.